Let's uh, revisit Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Last week I had gotten into a discussion about the four forms of the Gospel that we see in the New Testament. This was necessitated by our introduction to the fourth form of that Gospel in Revelation 14, 6, and 7, the everlasting Gospel. A message of good news which emphasizes that Jesus Christ, that God is Creator, and that the earth is His to do with what He pleases. And though man may nation against God to overthrow His rule and to overthrow His Christ, God that sits in the heavens, Psalms 2 says, will laugh and have them in derision. And that's good news in the period of tribulation to those Jewish, that Jewish remnant and those tribulation saints that remain. It's good news to those martyred saints in heaven. And it's good news to those at that time who are dwelling in heaven, dwelling as if in a mansion, the church, who will return with Christ to rule and to reign. So in the New Testament, we see four forms of the gospel that in a sense are not new at all. They're throughout the Old Testament. You don't need the New Testament and the Romans road to point somebody to the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. There's a very discernible Jerusalem road in the Old Testament whereby the same truths promulgated in Romans are easily distinguishable. And yet so many, Jew and Gentile alike, are blind. The first form of the Gospel that we talked about last week, and I can't emphasize enough, this is not four different Gospels. It's the Gospel in its fullness and four different emphases of that Gospel. We always want to talk about the Gospel of Jesus Christ as being limited to His sacrifice for the sins of the world. But we forget that part of that Gospel is that He will and rule and reign and fulfill the promises to Israel. Part of that Gospel is that He would build a church. And with the building of the church is more than just the salvation of the souls. It involves the things in which we were involved this morning. It's more than that. And the Gospel also involves the fact that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an earthly king. He's Creator God. God made flesh. So last week we talked about the first form, which is the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Kingdom of God that Jesus preached is the truth that God and His plan and purpose for the ages to redeem mankind will send a Messiah to set up a literal earthly kingdom has a distinctive Jewish element in which all the promises made to Israel will be realized, demonstrating to all men that a God, a faithful God, is faithful even in the midst of an unfaithful people. The second form of the Gospel I want to talk about this morning, the Gospel of the Kingdom is almost like the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. It emphasizes Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews and the Jewish Messiah. The second form of the Gospel is what I would call the Gospel of the Grace of God. We see in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Last week we looked at Matthew 24, 14. This Gospel of the Kingdom must be preached in all the world for a witness. And then the end will come. There's been a past preaching under John the Baptist, a future preaching during the Tribulation, a future emphasis... And once that gospel of the kingdom has gone to the ends of the earth, the, war, the end will come. And that will not be fulfilled by the church. It's just started by the church, but it's finished and completed by those Jewish witnesses. So this idea that if I go out and give out the last track to the last person to hear and maybe Jesus will come, it's kind of foolish. It doesn't fit the biblical uh, picture that's clearly laid out. Acts 20.24 But none of these things move me, Paul writes. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course with joy. This is when Paul had set his face to go back to Jerusalem. And he was being warned that if he goes back, he's going to get in trouble. He's going to get arrested and something's going to happen. And Paul's like, you know what? My face is set. I'm going. I don't even count my life dear to myself anymore. That I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. Paul was intent on finishing what he started. 
regardless of what laid ahead, even if it cost him his life. Quite a contrast to the testimony we were forced to deliberate this morning. The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That was the ministry Paul received, to preach the gospel of the grace of God to the Gentiles. What is the emphasis of the gospel of the grace of God? It's good news that Jesus Christ was rejected by the people of Israel, that He might pay the price for our sins on a Roman cross for our salvation. The gospel of the grace of God is our primary emphasis in this age in which we preach Jesus Christ, not just the Messiah of Israel, but a substitutionary and a propitiatory atonement for the sins of mankind that God accepted, both Jew and Gentile. Propitiatory means that He, in offering up His blood, satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Jesus didn't pay the devil when He paid the price for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. That's not comfortable to many of these sissy preachers and sissy reverends out here today that want to talk about what Jesus did as an example for everyone. Of course it's an example. It's an example for the church that we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But it's more than that. He satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, in offering up His blood, became an escape hatch from the wrath of God. Something we didn't deserve. And the proof that God's grace accepted that sacrifice is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the proof. He rose up from the dead. Had He stayed dead, we would have all men be most miserable. This emphasis on the grace of God is nothing new. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's nothing new at all. It was in the Old Testament, very clear. What was veiled in the Old Testament was unveiled. Isaiah chapter 53. Very important passage. What the rabbis have done with Isaiah 53 trying to say that the servant here is not Messiah, it's the people of Israel, and that the people of Israel would bear the sins of the world and that they would be chosen by God to be a light to the Gentiles and therefore they suffered and were scattered so they would be a light to the Gentiles and point them to monotheism and the true God. That's foolishness. If you look at Israel scattering, their diaspora and all the sin, all the suffering and punishment through the ages, I dare say the number of Gentiles that it converted to the belief of the God of Israel could probably be put on one hand. Didn't, didn't serve that purpose at all. Israel was scattered and suffered because they rejected the oracles of God that were given to them. They rejected God. What took place in the Holocaust was supernatural rage authorized by God and carried out by the devil. Go read Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26. God does what He says He's going to do. Of course, woe unto them. Sometimes offenses must come but woe unto them by whom they come. What happened to Jesus with Judas and his betrayal had to happen, but Jesus said it would have been better for Judas that he'd never been born. It would have been better for Hitler and the Germans that were involved in that that they had never been born. But you know, the poor Palestinians and the poor PLO and all of these Arabs that call for the destruction of Israel are no different. What, they're ta what they've been touting as far back as 1929 is no different than what the Third Reich touted. And what the Third Reich touted, they didn't learn from Martin Luther. They didn't learn from Protestants. They learned from official Catholic dogma going all the way back to the early centuries of the church. All the Germans were, all the Nazis were, were faithful Roman Catholics. That's all they were. And the Pope kept his mouth shut the entire time this went on. It was Catholicism. Nazism was Catholicism is Islam today. It's the spirit of hatred. But offenses might... When you, when you turn your back on God and He warns you He's going to do what He says He's going to do. But none of these things were surprised. They were there. But yet in the midst of all this and despite the rabbi's misinterpretation of Isaiah 53, foolishness, the gospel of the grace of God was there for all who would believe. Messiah, Messiah must come. 
to bear the sins of many. It says in Isaiah 53 that God would see the travail of His soul, the soul of Messiah. There's no question this is talking about Messiah and not a nation. It says, It pleased the Lord, verse 10, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. The nation of Israel was never an offering for anyone's sin. It was the Messiah of Israel that was an offering for her sins and for the sins of the world. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his deed, seed. He shall prolong his days. There's your resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper. He shall see of the travail of his soul. God will see the travail of Messiah's soul and shall be satisfied. There's your propitiation. God's righteousness satisfied by the travail of the soul of Messiah. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Here's the gospel of the kingdom. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Christ was numbered between two thieves. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There you have the gospel of the grace of God that was commissioned to Paul that he faithfully carried out and preached. I love this passage, particularly verses 10 through 12, because if you look at the Hebrew text, it's very interesting that from time to time you can find things in the text. The letters over the centuries have not changed. They've proven themselves accurately reproduced. The Isaiah scroll that was found in the Qumran caves that dates to about 250 B.C. in Hebrew is exactly like our Masoretic text that was preserved down through the centuries that was translated into the English by the King James translators. The letters have been consistent. And when you look at Isaiah 53, 10-12 in the Hebrew text, you can find a message in there. Yeshua Beni. Jesus is my name. It's right there in the text. The letters of that statement are equidistant one from another. That means the first letter starts and you start counting backwards and a certain number of letters you find the second letter. Then you count backwards the same number. It's there. I've got it marked in one of my Tanakhs at home and it's an equidistant thing. So it's definitely not a coincidence. It's right there in the text. Jesus is my name. Right there in the text of Isaiah. And the fact that Messiah would pay for the sins of Israel is clear, but that He would be a light to the Gentiles was also clear. It was nothing new that Jesus would come and be rejected by His people and then go to the Gentiles. The Jews got so angry about it. When Paul said that God had sent Him to the Gentiles, that's when they wanted to tear Him apart. They hated that. But it's right there in their book. Flip over to Isaiah 49. It was always in the plan of God. Isaiah 49, 6 and 7. And He said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. I will also give thee, that is Messiah, for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be My salvation unto the end of the earth. So you have the gospel of the kingdom emphasized in the first half of that verse and the gospel of the grace of God to the ends of the earth in the second half. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One to whom man despiseth and to whom the nation abhorreth. You see, the rabbis say that the servant spoken of in these chapters is the nation of Israel itself. But the proof is right here of that foolishness. Because the servant is despised by the nation. He's abhorred by the nation. So how can the nation be the servant and also the one that abhors the servant? It's a blindness. Jewish people are very intelligent and have been a part of inventing many different things and show extreme intelligence in lots of areas of life. But when it comes to the plain truths of their Scriptures, they can be dumber than a bag of hammers. Because when the Bible says there's a blindness, there's a blindness. 
When the Bible says there's a veil, there's a veil. But that veil can be taken away in Christ. That veil was taken away from the faces of 12 cussing sailors who Jesus Christ discipled and sent out into the world to change the entire world, turn the world upside down. First churches, Jewish. First pastors, Jewish. First missionaries, Jewish. So the veil can be taken away in Christ. But the blindness is evident. We need to pray that that veil is taken away, that God continues to save people from the nation of Israel and bring them into the church. The gospel of the grace of God. It's easy that Messiah would come and restore Israel according to the promises, but He'd be more than that. He'd be salvation to the ends of the earth. God's grace to the nations. Going all the way back to what was promised in Abraham, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. How are all the nations blessed through Abraham? Abraham's seed was the Savior of the world. And in Abraham's seed, men can have life. The gospel of the grace of God. It's not a new thing in the New Testament. The New Testament just expounds upon what was already there. God is consistent. Paul, when he opens up his epistle of the Romans, to the Romans, expressing the desire to come see them, to labor where Christ has not been named. Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. That was his resume. I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ. Contrast that with pastors who introduce themselves today. A servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated unto what? The gospel of God. In Acts, he was commissioned to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's no other gospel. It's the gospel that Abel understood when he offered up a blood sacrifice. It's the gospel that Cain rejected when he said, I'll come to God on my own terms. And then became the spiritual father of all man-made religion. Rabbinic Judaism included. Rabbinic Judaism is as distant from biblical Judaism and biblical Christianity as Catholicism and Islam is from these things. Make no mistake. Dead religion, the spirit of Cain. But the gospel of the grace of God is not just the gospel of His grace, it's the gospel of God. Rooted in God is grace. What is grace? Grace is God giving us or offering us something free of charge that we do not deserve. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He offers us life that we don't deserve. Just as God in His grace clothed Adam and Eve with skins of animals. Something they didn't... They deserved to be ashamed when they saw their nakedness. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. It's God's mercy that we can escape hell. It's by God's grace that we can have eternal life in His kingdom. God's always been a God of grace to those that humble themselves and believe His Word. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. David found grace. Nathan said, Thou art the man. Instead of making excuses or saying, We have a disagreement or I just think you're wrong, David said, You're right. I have sinned. And God took His sin away. The grace of God. John 3.16 tells us that the gospel of God's grace is sourced in His love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That little word so there has been so mistranslated in modern versions. That verse does not say God loved the world so much that He gave His Son, and you can just go on living in your perverted homosexuality. You can just go on being confused about your... and dressing like a woman when God calls it an abomination in the Old thing. You just be okay because God just loves you all so much. That's not what that means. In the original Greek, it's an adverb. If you look at the Spanish Bible, de tal manera, in, in this manner God loved the world. In the Nepali Bible, yes siri, in this way... God loved the world. It tells us the manner in which He loved it. Not how much He loved it. It's not an adjective 
like the NIV translates. It's an adverb. This is how God loved the world. This is the source of His love. This is the channel of His love. It's Jesus Christ. His Son. Outside that channel, there's no love to be found. God's love comes through a channel. A source of love. That is Jesus Christ. That's how His love was manifested. But like Cain, we reject it. We want His love to just... We, we want to tell Him how He is to love. But so is so important in that passage. This is how God loved the world. It's a free gift of grace. But if we reject it, how can we expect God to turn a blind eye to our sin and to injustice? God so loved the world. The character of this gospel is the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Very important passage. For by grace, that is, God offering us something we don't deserve, are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Those two verses alone separate what we preach from all man-made religion, churchianity included. How in the world could anybody with a straight face say the God of the Quran and the God of the Bible are the same? That the weakling Jesus hanging on a Catholic cross is the same as the resurrected Lord of the New Testament. That any of these isms out here are on par with the gospel of the grace of God. These two verses alone. And that's the stumbling block. Because men don't want to acknowledge that they're in need of grace. They want to justify themselves and think that their works will make them right with God. I found a certificate the other day when I was helping to clean out some stuff. The details aren't important. But it's where someone was being commemorated because over a period of time, they had given a total of five gallons of their blood to the American Red Cross. And it was a bit of appreciation. That's pretty impressive. The sad thing is there are people out here that actually think that that impresses God. That actually think something like that will be an argument before God as to why they can get into heaven. I don't know if that person, particular person thought that, but I know that plenty of people do. But the gospel is by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the subject of that grace, the primary subject of that gospel is not us. It's Christ. It's Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.14 For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you, for we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul said in Romans 1.16, in a King James Bible, I'm not, afraid of, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's not just gospel, like the modern versions read. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because the centerpiece of the gospel is not us. It's Christ. He's the benefactor, the chief benefactor. It's Christ. That's why there's no such thing as limited atonement. Boasted upon by hyper-Calvinists out there. You see, if man was the centerpiece of the gospel, then I guess you could make that type of philosophical argument. The Bible tells us to be, war to, to be warned, warns us against dabbling philosophies and babblings. Vain and profane babblings. The chief benefactor of the atonement's not us, it's Christ Himself. Therefore, whether men receive it or reject it, Christ is glorified. So how is it limited? As far as our perspective, in terms of the benefits man receives, only those who believe. But if Christ is the chief benefactor, then whether you believe or reject, Christ is glorified. He's glorified. The chief subject is Christ. We try to make the most important thing in God's plan and purpose for the ages the redemption of man. And that's an arrogant thing. Oh, the redemption of man is part of that. But it all centers around the glory of God. And that's why the essence of faith is the glory of God in terms of 
when God says something, we believe it. Taking God at his word. Everything that happens is for God's glory, not for man's redemption. Man's redemption is a part of that. But we've got the priorities backwards. When everything's about the redemption of man, when everything's about the redemption of man, we can justify any wicked sin of society and bring it in the church and say God's just okay with it. Carry not about His glory. It's not just... This, Christ is not just the subject of the gospel of grace. This gospel of grace, this gospel of Christ, is the power of God. It's not just a message. It's not just words that you repeat in a prayer. It's not just something you say with your mouth. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's the power of God. If you claim the Gospel and there's no power in your life, then you don't know the Gospel of the grace of God. We often quote Romans 1.16 like we do other verses and we stop too soon. How can we stop at verse 16? For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, we always forget that part, and also to the Greek, and then we stop. Why? For therein, that is in the Gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The Gospel is not just the power of God unto salvation, it reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel of grace reveals God's righteousness. It shows us that we can be made with, right with God the same way Abraham was. The faith of the gospel is the faith of Abraham. Bob, would you look up Genesis 15.6? And Matthew, I'll have you read Genesis 22.8. God's consistent here. Nothing new. God spoke His Word to Abraham in Genesis 15, something that required a lot of faith. This was the second time that the Lord appeared to Abraham about ten years after He appeared to him the first time in Genesis 12. He was 75 years old when He went down into the land of Canaan. Ishmael was born 11 years after Abraham came into Canaan, I believe. And in Genesis 15, God appears to him a second time saying, Go out and count the stars of heaven. Abraham's about 85 years old at this point. He's 86 when Ishmael is born. He's 100 when Isaac is born. So, I mean, this isn't something that happened overnight. There was a real faith here that waited on God. God gave the word and Abraham believed it over a long period of years where he saw very little fruit, endured many difficulties. He didn't just pack his bags and go back to Haran because he had a feeling that things were difficult or that the people of the land weren't agreeing with him or they weren't, he wasn't seeing the fulfillment of these things God said. He didn't just pack his bags and go back. He stayed, he endured. And what does it say in Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God's Word and God counted that faith as righteousness. That's what the gospel of the grace of God is. We believe God's Word, what He says about our sin, what He says about Jesus Christ, and what He says about salvation. We believe it. And when we believe it, we endure. We don't go back to Herod. We don't quit. We endure because we believe it. And just as God took Abraham's faith and counted it for righteousness, He does the same for us in Jesus Christ. Taking God at His Word. The faith of Abraham is the faith of the Gospel. Genesis 22, 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went of them together. This is the story of Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. Isaac is called a lad here in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham speaks to his servants and said, I and the lad will go up. 
In Genesis 21, Ishmael is called a lad and he was 19 years old. So Ishmael was 19 years old and called a lad. Okay? In Genesis chapter 22, you've got Isaac who's probably around 20 years old when this takes place. When Ishmael mocks him, he's about five years old. But So this is something that happened around the time Isaac was probably 20. Somewhere between 5 and 37, that's when Sarah dies, it happened, his age. But he's called a lad, which is a 19-year-old in chapter 21. So this wasn't just some kid that had no power to resist his father physically. This was a young man who could have resisted this physically if he wanted to, but he laid his life down. He was willing to sacrifice himself knowing that God had commanded it. But Abraham prophetically spoke the object of his faith here. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? My son, God will provide himself. Not he will provide for himself. He will provide himself a lamb. He will be the lamb himself. Here we have the faith of Abraham prophetically spoken. And its object was Messiah. Therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. From Abraham's faith to the faith of Jesus Christ's disciples, the just shall live by faith. And guess what? The just shall live by faith is a quote from the Old Testament. The prophet Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. Nothing new. It was always there. 1 Timothy 1 verse 11 says that the gospel of God's grace is a glorious gospel. If it's glorious, why are we so ashamed to preach it? Why do we want to corrupt, corrupt it and bastardize it? And act as if Jesus didn't have to die. Every man's just saved. The only people in hell used to be only two... One person's in hell, according to everybody. That's Hitler. And it used to be only one other person was going there. That was George W. Bush. Now, I think it's risen to three at least. Hitler's in hell... And the world says, we know George, du well, I don't know, maybe George W. Bush has gotten back in favor. But he was going there for sure. Now we know for a fact, according to the world, Donald Trump's going there. So we got, and then of course, all street preachers are going there too. That, that, that's the world. But everybody else, every pervert, every sodomite, every tranny, every child molester, every thief, every murderer, you know, none of them have to go. Only the streetchers, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, and Hitler himself in the eyes of the world. But that's not according to the Bible. The Bible says the gospel that we're so ashamed often to preach is a glorious gospel. Paul said that he was commissioned to preach the gospel of God's grace, that it was the gospel of Christ. And then here he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So in three different places, he speaks of what was committed to him as the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of Christ, and a glorious gospel. What's interesting is you go back two verses. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law was given to show us our sin. It's not made for a righteous man. Why does a righteous man need the law? For the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers. There's a lot of perverts in this country today that would fall right in that category. Whoremongers. For them that defile themselves with mankind. Homosexuals. Defiling themselves. Homosexuals. That also includes those that are confused about their gender. If you're confused about your gender, you've either um, you, you've got a mental problem or you're so steeped in sin that you can't see the forest for the trees. Those are, those are them that defile themselves with mankind. For men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. All of these things are contrary to the gospel of God's grace. They're contrary. They can't coexist. The law shows us these things are sinful and they ought to drive us to Christ, but yet we carry them along and think we can mix it all together. These things are... Homosexuality is contrary 
to the gospel of God's grace. Whoremongering is contrary to the gospel of God's grace. Lies, thieveries, profanities, lawlessness. It's contrary to the gospel of God's grace. And shame on the church when it walks alongside this stuff and keeps silent. It's a glorious gospel that is contrary to what the world and churchianity says is okay. The gospel of God's grace is something that shines the very image of Messiah Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whom, verse 3, but if the gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For us that are saved, the gospel shines the very image of Christ. To those that are lost, they've been blinded. Only the power of the Spirit of God can remove the scales over the eyes. Satan blinds men to this because it's a shining gospel that shines a light into our heart. And if you've been born again, you know what that is. How can you continue to live the way you did before when that light shines? Not just a light, but the image of Christ Himself. Hebrews 2 verse 10 tells us that the gospel of God's grace serves to bring many sons to glory. Many sons, Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 6.15 calls it a gospel of peace. When talking about the armor of God, we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We ought to go out and preach it. It's a gospel of peace. What does that mean? It's what makes peace between the sinner and God. It's what only, the only thing that can bring peace to the soul. When I preach the gospel overseas in Nepali, I often talk about how religion is bondage. It's bondage. Bandhan in Nepali. But in Christ, we can have freedom from that bondage. We can have peace with our Maker. I remember back in the early 2000s when they used to have all these anti-America rallies or anti-George Bush rallies anti-Iraq war rallies, they were always just anti-Semitic things where people were waving Palestinian flags and cursing the Jews. Proof of the biblical prophecy that said Jerusalem in the last days would be a cup of trembling to all nations. I never understood why a bunch of homos in the Castro district of San Francisco cared anything about a little tiny nation in the Mediterranean Sea that didn't affect them whatsoever. Why did they even care? It's the Bible. It's history written before time. Jerusalem would be a cup of trembling to all peoples. It makes no sense. But it was anti, all these anti-Israel rallies and all of this garbage. And we took a sign that would go out there and it had bombs and things on it. We drew on there. This is back when we drew our own sign. And it said, true peace is peace with God. Because they were calling for peace. And peace with God only comes through the blood of His cross. See, unless we have peace with God, we can't have peace with our fellow man. It's not peace on earth to men of goodwill. There's no such thing as a man of goodwill, like the modern Bibles say. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men is who Jesus the Christ is. And what was prophesied there by the angels when Christ came into the world will one day happen. There will be peace. There will be peace with God, and only then will there be peace with man. But it won't be a democracy. It won't be a representative republic. It'll be an authoritarian monarchy. And finally, the earth will have a righteous king. Finally. Peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's why we can enter His throne room boldly and pray specifically. Because the gospel of God's grace brings peace. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is important. Because when it comes to this gospel of the grace of God, it's preaching. It's bold, unapologetic, authoritative preaching to those that have experienced it. It's not foolishness. It's not a waste of time. It's not turning people away. It's the power of God. 
It's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is a litmus test for many that call themselves Christians. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved is the power of God. Litmus test. When you go out to share the gospel and you're preaching or you're declaring the cross, if a so-called Christian comes up and thinks it's foolishness, there's the litmus test. You've told me all I need to know about where you stand before the Lord. Those that perish think the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to those that are saved, it is the power of God. I was remarking to Brother Tim when we were in Kathmandu. We went out on the streets a couple days and just handed out a few tracts, talked to some people. We were in Tamil, where all the, the uh, foreigners and the tourists come. Daniel preached a little bit. I preached in Nepali. But I had a couple of Nepali believers come up. One was a new believer. And just thanked us for being out there. Was just encouraged. I prayed with him. Every single time we have gone out in the streets over a long period of years in Nepal or India or any of these other countries that is not, does not have a predominantly white population and we've preached the cross 100%, not 99, 100% of Christians that have heard us and that have come to talk to us have expressed appreciation, have shown that this was the power of God and have thanked us for being out there. I can count, I can remember countless times where relatively poor people compared to the average American would go and buy us a bottle of water or a Coke just to say thanks for preaching the gospel. But not in Europe and not in America. Where Whitey is in the majority and Whitey claims to be Christian, he's got a problem with it. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but, yeah, but, you're turning people away. This is not effective. It's all about love. Leave it up to whitey American, whitey fake Christian European to have a problem with the preaching of the cross. Always. But you won't find it in Nepal with Christians. You won't find it with Indian believers. You won't find it in other places. You won't find it with brothers and sisters in Bangladesh. You won't find it. There's a stain on our country. It's a mark of where we are spiritually. It's sad, but the preaching of the cross is only foolishness to those that perish. I can't imagine walking down a street and a Christian handing me a gospel tract. I can't imagine as a believer who has been changed by the preaching of the cross that I would turn to such an individual and say, I don't need that, give it to somebody else. Or, I'm already a Christian. I can't imagine that. It doesn't even equate in my mind. I would be so encouraged when somebody gives me a tract, I'll either tell them, you know, I'm already saved and I really appreciate what you're doing, give it to somebody else, or, or I'll take it and give it to somebody. I mean, I'm encouraged by that. I can't imagine. I can imagine a time in my life when I would say that before I knew Christ, when I was playing the church game. I can't imagine that now, and, and you couldn't either because the preaching of the cross is power to those that believe. The gospel of the grace of God is the power of God. It's not foolishness unless you're perishing. Good litmus test here for so-called Christians that you encounter. That doesn't mean that they do things exactly like you do or that a true Christian has to stand on a soapbox and preach. There's many ways to share the gospel. There's many ways to be faithful. Brother Tim, who came and worked with us in Kathmandu, he's not a street preacher. You'd never get him on a box to preach. But he sure knows how to talk to individuals and he's not ashamed to talk to individuals. And listen, and in doing so, speaking the gospel. That's every bit as effective and as important as a witness as me standing there and Tom L. preaching open air. Some ways I think that takes more boldness. But what he does is not foolishness to me, it's the power of God, even though it doesn't look like me. What I'm doing insofar as it's faithful to the Scriptures isn't foolishness to him, it's the power of God. Because we know the grace of God. This Emphasis, the second form of the gospel, its emphasis is eternal salvation and eternal life. The gospel of the kingdom has an emphasis that Christ is Messiah and He will come and set up a kingdom. This emphasizes Jesus not as King, but Jesus as Savior. The grace of God in offering us what we do not deserve. Acts 16.31 sums it up. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's a mouthful. When you call Jesus the Lord, that's the word used for God in the Old Testament. Jesus is the name given by the angel which means Savior. And Christ is His office. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach. It means Messiah. So even in this simple statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you have Jesus as Creator, Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Messiah. So even within that, the Gospel of the Kingdom and the Everlasting Gospel are couched. Couched around the Gospel of God's grace. Understand, not four Gospels, four emphases. And they're never completely independent one of another. The Gospel of the grace of God, like Acts 16.31, is short and sweet. It doesn't need commentary. It's short and sweet. Jesus as Savior. We can find it in Mark chapter 16. Probably the most succinct statement of the Great Commission. Great Commission can be found five times in the New Testament. And with each time, there's a different emphasis. But it's all the Great Commission. I was able to do some teachings on that over in India last month. The believers really appreciated it. Mark 16, 15, and 16. This is the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 15. Jesus said unto them, His disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the commission. Not a good suggestion, a great commandment. It's given to us. Our responsibility. But our responsibility ends at verse 15. We get into verse 16. The gospel is defined. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's one work. The Holy Spirit baptism isn't some subsequent work that comes later when you start gibbering out your mouth some unintelligible language. Paul said in Corinthians, that we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body. Spiritual baptism occurs at the time we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. And then we're commanded to be baptized of water as an outward testimony of that inward change. The first step of obedience. He that is, believeth and is baptized by the Holy Spirit shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's the gospel of the grace of God. Period. And guess what? That's God's responsibility. Ours is to go and preach. Saving and damning, converting, that's God's problem. You know, people ask me, you know, you know, people always think, you know, a missionary is somebody that gets paid to convert someone. Or are you out here converting or proselytizing? No, that's not my ministry. Religion tries to proselytize or to convert. A Bible-believing Christian understands that that's the work of God. He's just an ambassador to commission the message. And so when people ask me overseas if I'm a missionary, I'm not going to lie, but what I usually respond is if you're asking me whether or not I get paid to convert people to a religion, no, I'm not. Because that's their definition. Or I may say, eh, every Christian's a missionary. It's the truth. But the saving, the damning, that's God's responsibility. And that's at the heart of the gospel of God's grace. Preach it. The results are God. If we'd remember that, we'd stop trying to figure out better ways to get people to come into the church. We wouldn't have to advertise. I've never understood churches that advertise. We're not called to advertise. We're not called to proselytize. We're called to preach, to be ambassadors. Why are you advertising to try to get people? I don't want people coming in here that don't come in with true salvation and a desire to grow in God's Word. I don't want that spirit in here. Why would we advertise unless it's all about the money? Follow the money. There's all of these immigrant services out here that tout the different denominations and all that. It's not about the immigrants. It's not about bringing them to Christ. It's about the money they get from the government for every unfortunate immigrant that they help. It's about the money. All the so-called bold Republicans here in North Carolina that took a stand for HB2 the end of the day, it was all about the money. Oh my goodness, the NCAA may not bring a tournament to this state. We're going to lose billions of dollars, so we've got to repeal it. And come up with some cockamamie compromise that you don't really even understand what it's saying. I don't respect any of those politicians. 
You may have been afraid of losing a few billion dollars because of, an, of a tournament, but you just lost a lot more. America, in my opinion, has already signed its death warrant. If you look at God's history in dealing with nations that screw the Jews and stab them in the back, America's already guilty. We've been a friend of the Jews in many ways. Go back and study the whole process of Israel becoming a nation and how it was lied to by the British and how its land was taken away from it and the Americans stood by. How America wouldn't have even recognized Israel's independence hadn't it, had, had it not been for a president that decided to just do what was right regardless of what his staff thought. I found a quote by Harry Truman yesterday. He said, I think the right thing to do is to do what's right and let all the rest of them go to hell. Hey, praise God. In fact, the Truman administration sent out a telegram recognizing that Israel is a nation before he even told it to the staff and to the ambassador to the UN. And they all got their panties in a wad and threatened to resign. But America's already signed his death warrant. God may give us a respite. I mean, hey, I heard that witch come out of hiding the other day after losing the election and talk for a few minutes. And after listening to her for about two minutes, I thought, if our president doesn't do anything else for Christians or for, or for the freedom of religion, or for our, if he doesn't do anything else and is completely hamstrung the rest of his presidency, I'm glad I cast my vote the way I did just so I don't have to hear that lady talk every day. And praise God, I could check a box on my tax return this year that says I don't wish to disclose whether I have health insurance or not. Didn't have to pay a penalty. So if nothing else happens, I can praise God. But America signed its death warrant. It's already signed it. Our trust can't be in this country. Our trust can't be in all this fake churchianity. How in the world can we expect the politicians of this country to do what's right when the church is afraid to do what's right? When the church thinks abortion's okay and never speaks out against it, how can we expect... Republicans or pro-life people who aren't even saved to do what's right? Give me a break. We should pray for those things. We should lift up a voice. We should be thankful for a society in which we still have the freedom to do those things. But Why do we think that laws that have been passed recognizing homosexuality and abortion in this country will ever be undone? When the people that are supposed to be at the forefront of fighting these things are too busy playing video games and trying to get people into the church so they can get a better offering plate and build a bigger building. God can do whatever He wants to. The fact that Israel even became a nation in 47 was a huge miracle. The fact that it was even in that position. Going, you, know, you go back to 1920 and 21 where the British basically went back on their word with the Jewish people. I mean, how did it even happen? It was a miracle. You can't stop what God's going to do. The UN and all 188 nations, by virtue of the stance they've taken with the people of Israel, have already signed their death warrant. They'll be gathered by God into a valley, and they'll all be destroyed. It's been written. can't be changed. This book right here is a bear trap. It'll snap on you and snap you in there, and you won't be able to get out. You'll use God's words. You'll twist them around like the rabbis do to justify what you've already decided, claim it's God's will, and then it's going to snap shut. And you're trapped. And you're going to be the instrument of fulfilling what was written long ago. That's what America's done. Notwithstanding the gospel of God's grace, Jesus Christ is Savior. Blindness to the truth of God in the Scriptures can be removed by the faith of Abraham. And it's a free gift upon all and unto all that believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's God's grace. We don't deserve it. But He offers it to us if we'll receive it. A free gift. Repent and believe the Gospel. The very message that Jesus preached. The second form of the Gospel. I'm going to end with that today. The next two forms of the Gospel include what Paul calls my Gospel. And then we get into the everlasting Gospel. If you want to look at the Gospel of God's grace, just as the Gospel of the Kingdom is kind of like the picture we have of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew... The gospel of the grace of God is like the picture we have of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And Moses is primarily a servant. And we know according to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 46 that it's God's servant who comes to make Himself an offering for sin. It's very short. It's very sweet. And so we have this fuller picture of the gospel coming into play. But it doesn't end there. 
It's not only about Israel and a kingdom. It's about all the nations. It's not only about eternal life and about eternal salvation. It's also about something just as important. It's about building up the church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why do we think that's unimportant? Why do we just tell people, come to Christ, pray a prayer over them, baptize them, stick them in a pew, get their offerings and leave it at that? Why do we stop there? It was never about making converts. It was about making disciples. There's things that we as the church are supposed to do that continue to be a witness to the world. Church discipline is one of them. But we don't even read about those things. It's all been given to us, spelled out in the epistles of Paul. But we ignore it. So next week I want to talk about my gospel. The gospel that was committed to Paul. It's the same as the gospel of salvation that we've talked about today. It's the same as the gospel of God's grace, but it includes the additional revelations that were made known to the Apostle Paul and revealed in his epistles regarding the church. See, the church is a program God purposed to build, to provoke Israel to jealousy. The gospel doesn't stop with eternal life. It begins there for, for us Gentiles. And it begins, and it's supposed to go into building a church. And if we took those things seriously, and if we heeded the instruction given to us by Paul by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we wouldn't be running around moving from church to church all the time. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and you've united in fellowship with the local church, there are only two biblical reasons that you would ever have for leaving that church. Number one, doctrinal heresy. A swerving from the gospel of God's grace and biblical truth. Number two, God is specifically calling you into another ministry and you go out with the blessing of your local church, just as Paul and Barnabas were set aside and commissioned by the church at Antioch to go out. If you leave your church and it isn't for one of those reasons, then you're in sin. Period. There's no church shopping in the New Testament. Jesus said, I'll build my church. So if you just walk out, you're in sin. I don't care what Scripture you read and you say it's talking about you. Satan can look at Scriptures and twist them to say that it's... I mean, Satan can do that. It's nothing new. But my gospel that Paul refers to here in Romans 2.16 emphasizes the instructions given to the church. So I want to talk a little bit about that next week. I'm sorry we're moving slow. But these things are necessitated by the text. And then we'll talk briefly about the everlasting gospel. I want to get into to, uh, and show you how all of these four forms of the gospel, all of them are found in Colossians chapter 1. They're all right there. And then I want to talk about what's called another gospel. What Paul warned us about and how we should react to that versus the way the, the church, churchianity does. And then we're going to continue in Revelation 14. The second angelic messenger announces something that is music to the ears of all believers. Babylon is fallen. The world system is fallen. Praise God for that. That world system that began after the flood all the way back at... At Babel with Nimrod, and it's continued to this day and manifests itself in the United States of America, the League of Nations, the United Nations, and everything that governs this world. One day it will fall. No more. Done. Finished. Over. Praise God. All right, let's pray. I'm sorry, I didn't quite go to one despite the lateness of the hour when we started. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and for this opportunity to hear and be reminded of the gospel of Your grace. Lord, we need to constantly not just preach the gospel to the lost, but preach it to ourselves and be reminded of the things in which we believe. To be reminded of the power of God that is in salvation to those that believe. To be reminded of Your grace and mercy, the things we don't deserve, that we might be motivated to go out and reach others. Lord, we thank You that the promise is made concerning Messiah as a King, as a Savior, as the head of the church, as a creator, they're all true. This is no man-made religion. This is no dead prophet. This is no guru or lama. This is the creator God who made a promise and keeps His word. Lord, as You said to Israel in Malachi, I change not, therefore you sons of Israel are not consumed. Lord, we can say, because You don't change, Your church is not consumed. Because we certainly, 
in many ways have uh, rejected the truth. We have strayed from You. We have followed Israel's example. But because of Your promises and that You don't change, we are not consumed. You are a faithful God to an unfaithful people and we're humbled by that. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for saving us, Lord. And as we break bread together, I pray You would bless our food and our times of fellowship today and the rest of this Lord's Day as we meditate upon these heavy, heavy, yet simple truths we've heard today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen.